Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome to the Walter Bingham File for January the 18th, 2022, which in the Hebrew calendar we count as the 16th of Shvat. 5782. We mourn the death of Ora Herzog, the mother of our president Isaac Herzog, and wife of the sixth president of Israel, Chaim Herzog. Ora was 97 and died during the night of Monday, the 10th of January. In the War of Independence, Ora Herzog served as an officer in the Intelligence Division and later in the Science Corps, where she was severely wounded in a terror attack on the National Institutions Building in March 1948. I paid a personal condolence call to our President on behalf of Israel News Talk Radio and our listeners. May her memory serve as a blessing. I am Walter Bingham and hopefully again your host throughout this year. It's a pleasure and an honor to have your company. I realize that it's not a given, but that I have to earn your patronage by raising subjects that you would like to hear about and enjoy. I hope that during the past year I have succeeded so that we shall continue to meet again, God willing, weekly. In today's program, I'm discussing with a real expert the latest disturbing developments of UNRWA that control the school curriculum of Palestinian Arab children also, the increasing phenomenon of femicide in Israel, the murder of women. And I begin with an interview to show how the travel industry views the prognosis of this era of COVID. Today, the COVID travel restrictions and the, until recently, total ban of entry into Israel for foreign nationals, although necessary to protect our population, has caused much anger and in some cases hurt when families could not get together to celebrate family milestones or even to mourn their departed. There were voices skeptical of the efficacy of these rules, and even still today go as far as blaming the business interests of the COVID drug manufacturers to be in collusion with the government. I cannot condone this view because no government would risk its popularity by deliberately allowing widespread damage to the economy. Keep it here, there's more after this break. did a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom! I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home every Thursday, only on Israel News Talk Radio. And now, here is Walter Bingham. No government would risk its popularity by deliberately allowing widespread damage to the economy. Not even the best immunologists, virologists, or pharmacologists have yet a definite remedy 
of how to deal with our current pandemic. In the meantime, governments struggle to balance the economy with the health of the nation. One of the important segments that drives Israel's economy is the entertainment industry and within that, incoming tourism. In 2019, Israel hosted 4,551,000 tourists, earning the country some 8.438 million US dollars. The following year, the COVID brought that number down to 831,000 tourists, and the total figure for 2021 has not yet been published. Because it's anticipated that this year most travel restrictions into and out of Israel will be repealed, or at least greatly relaxed, it will be like drawing a champagne cork from an agitated bottle. Numbers will explode and increase exponentially by the day. So I consulted our trusted Walters World travel expert, Mark Feldman of Zion Tours of Jerusalem, for his prognosis. We are living in troubling times today, and the travel industry in particular is heavily affected. So, what's the prognosis? What are we going to do in the future when one COVID variant follows another? And regulations and restrictions are changed by the day. We've seen the Israeli government just a week or so ago finally eliminate the concept of a red country. They finally got away with the idea that to travel abroad, you need permission. We've gone back on one hand how the policy was a couple of months ago that any fully vaccinated person can come to this country. How do we define fully vaccinated? Let's understand that. Many countries haven't yet given booster shots, so we define it within the last 180 days. The number doesn't really mean a lot to people in Europe which have not gotten a booster, or even the U.S., but in time it, it will start to have an effect on people who want to come to this country. The problem is that we have not yet had a plateau on this latest variant, Omicron. People all over the world understand that numbers have never been this high in the previous variants that we've had with corona. It's getting higher and higher and higher. It's not so much a threat of morbidity, it's a threat of simply being infected. It's simply a thing of having been quarantined or being stuck seven to 10 days at a place. We don't really have the ability to encourage a lot of tourism coming here. Almost every day our prime minister or health ministry announces that we're gonna get two million sick, three million sick, four million sick. It's not exactly a message to entice tourists to come to this country saying, come to Israel and get sick. Insurance is going to cover you in terms of hospitalization or hotel stays. But very few people plan a trip to Israel with the idea that they may get sick here and be stuck here seven or ten days. But we're no worse off than other European countries. Which is why tourism to most countries is pretty much dead in the track. It's January. We know that unless you're going to go skiing, it's not exactly the time to go to visit Italy or the UK. Interesting, we're sending a lot of people to Australia and to South Africa, where the weather is far better. But these are people going for a long period of time, not the average person who may go for a visit for 10 days, not the family planning to coming here. We have congressional groups planned to come here in February, and they have said point blank, they don't know if they can come. Not from a military issue. Not from an issue that the border may be closed. They cannot afford to come here and get sick. And it's the first time in my period where we've seen this is the fear of people. No other fear except of getting infected. The numbers are astronomical. 
I'm sure all of your listeners now know somebody who had COVID. But we're going for herd immunity, aren't we? Because the effects of this Omicron are milder than the previous ones. Yes, but again, as you just said, we may achieve a herd immunity on the Omicron, but what about the next variant and the next variant? The, in other words, the whole concern is that whatever boosters, and, and we've had already 400,000 people in this country who've had a fourth shot, have been told by the head of Pfizer, we're not really sure it's necessary. And moreover, they've said very clearly, it'll be good to lessen your effects, but it's not going to stop you from getting infected. People are actually very, very scared about making short-term plans, let alone long-term plans. Until we reach enough, whether you want to call it herd immunity or the numbers in the U.S. or the U.K. or Israel have peaked and less and less people are getting infected, I don't see any change, certainly not for the next few weeks and months. So how are the hotels doing? Because last time we met, you said the hotel prices are going up. The hotels receive some government assistance. The vast majority of the hotels here are open only on the weekends. The Israelis who are staying in these hotels, during the week people are either working or in school or sick with COVID. So you have a, a majority of hotels that don't even open. Our five-star hotels, the David Citadel Hotel, is closed. They're not going to open. Mamilla Hotel will open on the weekend. King David's keeping staff primarily for the weekend. That's what we're getting. We don't have large groups coming now. Birthright canceled all of their groups for the next two months. So the hotel industry, where it now can host people, have found that there aren't people to host. How long can they hold out? How First, long can you hold out? We now have six agents back out of the 38. And my belief is that the contagion rate is so rapid on Omicron, that in a few weeks we will indeed plateau, that we will see people more confident to travel abroad. I, I want to believe that come February and March, once winter ends and warm returns, that people will feel more confident about traveling abroad. My business clients, though, have said today, no, I am not going to travel abroad. It's a short-term thing. We saw what happened last November. We saw after the Delta variant receded in the background that people started flying everywhere. Do I imagine this will happen again? Yes. Once we realize that it's in the rearview mirror, people are scared. Look at the airlines. Air Canada has stopped flying to Israel until March 1st. Cathay Pacific has stopped flying here to the middle of March. The airlines have already said they don't see an influx of tourism in January or February. They're not coming back for the next two and a half months. This is the reality that we just don't see many people coming here for the next few months. We're hopeful that come spring, it will change. On the other hand, Delta Airlines just announced that anybody who purchases a ticket now in 22 can use it up to 2024 if they have to change it. That lovely pragmatism saying we don't expect this to end in the next two years is not exactly the kind of news that I want to hear. Either we find a way to deal with it, to live with it, where people feel confident, or we achieve, as you said, some sort of herd immunity. I'm skeptical on both points. I see more and more people afraid to leave their country. Well, it's not very pleasant to sit for, for 12 or more hours with a mask on your face. Probably so, but even if it's saving one's health and if it's lowering the ability that you're going to get respiratory diseases or colds or flus, 
then I think people have adjusted to that in a positive manner. I just had a thought. Is the COVID virus programmed not to attack us while we're eating? That always puzzled me. We have the Jewish agency as one of our accounts. They're sending 1,800 counselors to Jewish camps all across North America. What's their concern? That the policy will change after they purchase the tickets and our government will go back to saying, okay, the new variant, we want you to require permission to fly. The problem is that we're not getting people to make their own choices. Where they make their own choices, that's completely fine. If you decide to go to the UK today, as you know, the United Kingdom has dropped anything about being tested beforehand. Part of what you said, they just assume that if you come, you're going to get sick or you were sick. So come to the UK has been their policy now. I think Germany is closed, isn't it? Germany is requiring you to have a valid COVID certificate, similar to what we did. The governments are concerned with protecting their citizens. I understand it. You just said that the United Kingdom would expect you to get sick when you come. Well, insurance companies are very shrewd assessors of risk. Travelers today in this era of COVID need insurance. Does one get COVID insurance? COVID insurance is not the problem. You can get COVID insurance that if you get sick while you're abroad or before you're abroad, the insurance will cover any cost involved. The problem is, let's say, for example, the country doesn't allow you in there. No insurance covers you for losses based on government policy. All of our tourists that were coming in December for Christmas and Hanukkah, none of them could come because Israel wasn't allowing tourists. They could not get any refund whatsoever. They could not get any money back from their insurance company because there are no policies that exist, to my knowledge, that cover if the government changes its decision, if you can get a refund. And it's something that a lot of tourists have been asking me, what happens if the policy changes? At this date, use it or lose it. If you had a trip planned, let's say, to Germany for a ceremony and bought the ticket in advance, and for whatever reasons, months from now, Germany said, sorry, we are not letting people that are not fully vaccinated in there. You would not be able to do anything with your insurance. You would be out the price of your air ticket or any other expenditures that you had. So the traveler is the one who's losing out. Correct. To change tack, there was some recent very interesting news in Israel that our finance minister, Avigdor Lieberman, suggested to people in the tourist industry, uh, tour, tour guides and so on, to change their profession. Ridiculous. Think of it as a bull in a china shop. It's not the first time he's made remarks that those of us in the profession find insulting. He has a point. The industry has changed. The airline industry, the hospitality industry, and the overall thing of tour operators has changed. The vast majority of people in it believe we are going to go back to some normalcy. Israel has seen the largest growth in hotel building in the last decade. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 
This is Shai Bentico, and each week I'll be webcasting to you from Judea, origin of the word Jew, a people besieged and beleaguered in every generation. Nazi Germany is but a memory, but in its place the world invented the phantom Palestinians as this generation's internationally authorized Jew killers. Tune in for a different slant on life in Israel, Phantom Nation, every Monday. And now, here is Walter Bingham. The vast majority of people believe we are going to go back to some normalcy. Israel has seen the largest growth in hotel building in the last decade. Hotels are being built at record numbers in this country. It's being done with government assistance, but it's being done because of the belief that in two or three years we'll have this beyond us and Israel will return to having mass amounts of numbers. I'm not sure. If we talk about the political situation, if the Abraham Accords has shown us anything in terms of tourism, There's a lot more countries that certainly the average American Jew and the American Christian can think about flying, and Israel is no longer on the top of their list. The amount of people that we've been sending to Dubai is astounding, Walter. Even today, we are sending people. We have Conference of American Presidents going to Dubai. We have APEX going to Dubai. It's almost sexy to go to the UAE, meet with people that have zero connection other than finally making peace with the state of Israel. So the outlook for new hotels may be wonderful. And maybe one day, five years from now, we'll see prices finally coming back down. But today, hotel prices can charge whatever they want to because so many Israelis are afraid to travel abroad. The building of many hotels is an indication that the government believe that tourism will return in numbers larger than ever before. And another indicator for that is that tour guide courses are still going on today. I have a friend who's doing a tour guide course. Your listeners probably don't understand that the Israeli tour guide course is one of the best in the world. It's an 18-month course, and the knowledge that they gain, even if they never handle another group, is one of the most astounding things in the world. We compare it in the United States to a two-year undergraduate degree, the amount of knowledge they get. Whether they're going to have many tourists, I don't know. I'm encouraging them to learn Chinese and Arabic because I think those are the numbers that are going to come much more than the English speaker. I've been in the industry a long time. I've seen the ups and the downs. I've seen wars. I've seen the ebbs and flows. This is something different. I see this as a four, five, six-year experience until we get this behind us. It will not happen overnight. It'll be a gradual return to normalcy. There is no magic button. I'm very sorry that in the autumn of my life, I have to experience these restrictions instead of being free and doing what I like. I now have to be very careful, doubly careful, to where I go and what I do. To be fair, you've experienced so much in your life and traveled to so many places. But for me, the 20-year-old, 25-year-old that has spent the last few years unable to travel. The kids who finished the army can no longer go to South America or to the Far East. It's their future that I'm concerned about. It's it's their experiences. It's been two years since they've been bringing groups to Israel on a regular basis, trying to bring back that enthusiasm, that word of mouth that they get from somebody who was on a program. I'm afraid we're running out of time and it's not a very good prognosis that you're giving me. But we have to trust in God and hope for the best. Mark Feldman of Zion Tours Jerusalem, thank you very much. Another disturbing statistics was released by the Israel Observatory on Femicide, the IOF.
on the murder of women. They are part of the Seymour Fox School of Education at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Although they report a drop in the overall figures from 2020 in the murder of women murdered by their partner or family members, they point to a troubling increase of mothers murdered by their sons. Matricide, which constitutes one quarter of femicide cases in Israel in 2021. Dr. Shalva Weil, the head of the IOF, said, We have to recognize femicide as a pandemic, as lethal as the COVID, and to allocate funds to eliminate these acts of violence. We must educate our fellow citizens to respect their elderly mothers. Here are some of the key findings listed in the report. 2021 saw a sharp overall increase in violence in the Arab sector. Of 125 homicides among Arabs, 14 were women, 8 categorized as honor killings. In all known femicide cases, the ethnicity of the perpetrators matched those of their victim. Of the total numbers, 50% were Arabs or Druze and 44% were Jewish. Domestic violence during lockdown was a significant factor. The average age of victims was 45.6 years. Approximately 25% of the women were stabbed, one-third were gunned down and another third were strangled. Although in 2021 several groundbreaking verdicts were recorded in three of the femicide cases, the murderers were deemed unfit to stand trial. To comply with international guidelines, femicide data was restricted to victims aged 18 or over. Ben-Gurion famously said, when Israel has prostitutes and thieves, will be a state like any other. Perhaps he did not believe that murderers, particularly of women, would be prevalent in a Jewish state. But even in earliest biblical history, several murders occurred. The first was Cain, who killed his brother Abel. That was about jealousy of his birthright. Herod killed John for what perhaps was the first case of investigative journalism, too dangerous for the king. Current Israeli politics indicate the aim of establishing a state for Jews equal to all states where everything goes. Well, we could have had this long ago in Uganda or Birobidjan, but the state of Israel is established on our ancient homeland and must therefore be a Jewish state with Jewish values based on Torah. I'm not advocating anything close to fundamentalism because we live within the larger international community and that requires us to accommodate, for instance, the requirements of millions of tourists every year. The COVID pandemic has almost crippled the entertainment industry throughout the Western world. Names of second-class entertainers that were not long ago popular in talk shows have receded in the memory of the general public, so it's fair game for them to use any means to rekindle the publicity they have once enjoyed. The American Jewish comedian and podcaster John Stewart, alias Leibovitz, 
thought that to accuse J.K. Rawlins's Harry Potter stories as anti-Semitic will surely gain him headlines. In one of his podcasts, using foul language, and compared the movie characters to the stereotypes of the anti-Semitic pamphlet The Protocols of the Elders of Zion and other derogatory characters. In subsequent posts, he stated categorically that he does not think J.K. Rowling is anti-Semitic. He insists, however, that he gained that impression from watching the characters in the first film in the series. That was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I am in a position to authoritatively refute that allegation, having played one of the characters in this film and others in the series. John Stewart's stunt, which he now says was meant as a joke, though that's difficult to see, backfired badly and instead brought him much criticism. But then they say there's no such thing as bad publicity. In January 1950, by Resolution 302, the United Nations General Assembly established the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, to carry out short-term relief exclusively for Palestinian Arab refugees who fled the country during the Arab-Israeli conflict in 1948. That of itself is an anomaly, because in the same year, the United Nations founded the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, as an agency mandated to aid and protect all refugees, forcibly displaced communities and stateless people and to assist in their voluntary repatriation, local integration or resettlement in a third country. They could easily have coped with the 750,000 or so displaced as a result of the 1948 war which led to the founding of Israel. Once any refugees in the care of UNHCR were settled, their refugee status ended and with it the support. Not so for the then reported displaced refugees as a result of the 1948 war which led to the founding of Israel and were cared for by UNRWA. They and all their descendants to this day are still classed as refugees by UNRWA and entitled to support wherever they live and whatever citizenship they have acquired. The only effort made by UNRWA was to establish so-called refugee camps in Lebanon, Jordan and the then so-called West Bank but no effort of permanent resettlement on the lines of the UNHCR was ever made. It's as if my great-grandchildren, who are truly settled in England, would be classed as refugees from the Nazis. Those families are kept as political pawns in the attempt to encourage the international community to pressure Israel to withdraw to the 1948 armistice lines and surrender part of Jerusalem. Today there are more than 7 million so-called Palestinian refugees scattered around the world, yet the Western countries financially support this enterprise that has been referred to as the world's greatest contract. 
To get the latest information on the activities of that NGO, I invited to the studio arguably the world's best authority on UNRWA, David Bedin, CEO of the Bedin Center for Near East Policy Research. Hi, I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. The vast majority of people believe we are going to go back to some normalcy. Israel has seen the largest growth in hotel building in the last decade. Hotels are being built at record numbers in this country. It's being done with government assistance, but it's being done because of the belief that in two or three years, we will be, have this beyond us, and Israel will return to having mass amounts of numbers. I'm not sure. If we talk about the political situation, if the Abraham Accords has shown us anything in terms of tourism, there's a lot more countries that the average person, certainly the average American Jew and the American Christian can think about flying, and Israel is no longer on the top of their list. The amount of people that we've been sending to Dubai is astounding, Walter. Even today, we are sending people. We have Conference of American Presidents going to Dubai. We have Apex going to Dubai. It's almost sexy to go to the UAE, meet with people that have zero connection other than finally making peace with the state of Israel. So the outlook for new hotels may be wonderful, and maybe one day, five years from now, we'll see prices finally coming back down. But today, hotel prices can charge whatever they want to because so many Israelis are afraid to travel abroad. The building of many hotels is an indication that the government believe that tourism will return in numbers larger than ever before. And another indicator for that is that tour guide courses are still going on today. I have a friend who's doing a tour guide course. The Israeli tour guide course is one of the best in the world. It's an 18-month course, and the knowledge that they gain, even if they never handle another group, is one of the most astounding things in the world. We compare it in the United States to a two-year undergraduate degree, the amount of knowledge they get. Whether they're going to have many tourists, I don't know. I'm encouraging them to learn Chinese and Arabic because I think those are the numbers that are going to come much more than the English speak. I've been in the industry a long time. I've seen the ups and the downs. I've seen wars. I've seen the ebbs and flows. This is something different. I see this as a four, five, six-year experience until we get this behind us. It will not happen overnight. It'll be a gradual return to normalcy. There is no magic button. I'm very sorry that in the autumn of my life, I have to experience these restrictions instead of being free and doing what I like. I now have to be very careful, doubly careful, to where I go and what I do. To be fair, you've experienced so much in your life and traveled to so many places. But for me, the 20-year-old, 25-year-old that has spent the last few years unable to travel. The kids who finished the army can no longer go to South America or to the Far East. 
It's their future that I'm concerned about. It's, it's their experiences. It's been two years since they've been bringing groups to Israel on a regular basis, trying to bring back that enthusiasm, that word of mouth that they get from somebody who was on a program. I'm afraid we're running out of time, and it's not a very good prognosis that you're giving me. But we have to trust in God and hope for the best. Mark Feldman of Zion Tours Jerusalem, thank you very much. Another disturbing statistics was released by the Israel Observatory on Femicide, the IOF, on the murder of women. They are part of the Seymour Fox School of Education at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Although they report a drop in the overall figures from 2020 in the murder of women murdered by their partner or family members, they point to a troubling increase of mothers murdered by their sons, matricide, which constitutes one quarter of femicide cases in Israel in 2021. Dr. Shalva Weil, the head of the IOF, said, We have to recognize femicide as a pandemic, as lethal as the COVID, and to allocate funds to eliminate these acts of violence. We must educate our fellow citizens to respect their elderly mothers. Here are some of the key findings listed in the report. 2021 saw a sharp overall increase in violence in the Arab sector. Of 125 homicides among Arabs, 14 were women, 8 categorized as honor killings. In all known femicide cases, the ethnicity of the perpetrators matched those of their victim. Of the total numbers, 50% were Arabs or Druze, and 44% were Jewish. The average age of victims was 45.6 years. Domestic violence during lockdown was a significant factor. Approximately 25% of the women were stabbed, one-third were gunned down, and another third were strangled. Although in 2021 several groundbreaking verdicts were recorded in three of the femicide cases, the murderers were deemed unfit to stand trial. To comply with international guidelines, femicide data was restricted to victims aged 18 or over. Ben-Gurion famously said, when Israel has prostitutes and thieves, will be a state like any other. Perhaps he did not believe that murderers, particularly of women, would be prevalent in a Jewish state. But even in earliest biblical history, several murders occurred. The first was Cain, who killed his brother Abel. That was about jealousy of his birthright. Herod killed John for what perhaps was the first case of investigative journalism, too dangerous for the king. Current Israeli politics indicate the aim of establishing a state for Jews, equal to all states where everything goes. Well, we could have had this long ago in Uganda or Birobidjan, but the state of Israel is established on our ancient homeland and must therefore be a Jewish state with Jewish values based on Torah. I'm not advocating anything close to fundamentalism, because we live within the larger international community and that requires us to accommodate, for instance, the requirements of millions of tourists every year. The COVID pandemic 
has almost crippled the entertainment industry throughout the Western world. Names of second-class entertainers that were not long ago popular in talk shows have receded in the memory of the general public, so it's fair game for them to use any means to rekindle the publicity they have once enjoyed. The American Jewish comedian and podcaster John Stewart, alias Leibovitz, thought that to accuse J.K. Rawlins's Harry Potter stories as anti-Semitic will surely gain him headlines. In one of his podcasts, using foul language, he compared the movie characters to the stereotypes of the anti-Semitic pamphlet The Protocols of the Elders of Zion and other derogatory characters. In subsequent posts, he stated categorically that he does not think J.K. Rowling is anti-Semitic. He insists, however, that he gained that impression from watching the characters in the first film in the series. That was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I am in a position to authoritatively refute that allegation, having played one of the characters in this film and others in the series. John Stewart's stunt which he now says was meant as a joke, though that's difficult to see, backfired badly and instead brought him much criticism. But then they say there's no such thing as bad publicity. In January 1950, by Resolution 302, the United Nations General Assembly established the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, to carry out short-term relief exclusively for Palestinian Arab refugees who fled the country during the Arab-Israeli conflict in 1948. That of itself is an anomaly, because in the same year, the United Nations founded the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, as an agency mandated to aid and protect all refugees, forcibly displaced communities and stateless people and to assist in their voluntary repatriation, local integration or resettlement in a third country. They could easily have coped with the 750,000 or so displaced as a result of the 1948 war which led to the founding of Israel. Once any refugees in the care of UNHCR were settled, their refugee status ended and with it the support. Not so for the then reported displaced refugees as a result of the 1948 war, which led to the founding of Israel and were cared for by UNRWA. They and all their descendants to this day are still classed as refugees by UNRWA and entitled to support wherever they live and whatever citizenship they have acquired. The only effort made by UNRWA was to establish so-called refugee camps in Lebanon, Jordan and the then so-called West Bank, but no effort of permanent resettlement on the lines of the UNHCR was ever made. Those families are kept as political pawns in the attempt to encourage the international community to pressure Israel to withdraw to the 1948 armistice lines and surrender part of Jerusalem. 
Today, there are more than 7 million so-called Palestinian refugees scattered around the world. Yet, the Western countries financially support this enterprise that has been referred to as the world's greatest contract. To get the latest information on the activities of that NGO, I invited to the studio arguably the world's best authority on UNRWA, David Bedin, CEO of the Bedin Center for Near East Policy Research. Welcome to the program, David. Thank you for having me today. So, what's been happening in that field? A very important development. On January 1st, which was only a few days ago, UNRWA in their schools in Bethlehem had celebrations of the new year? Not exactly. They had celebrations of the first Fatah terrorist attack, which took place on January 1st, 1965. And the way in which they memorialized it was to have marches in the refugee camps in Ida and Bethlehem, which is 50 meters away from Rachel's tomb, which is the Arabic word for return, meaning the right of return refugee camp. And they had widespread demonstrations. Another de- refugee camp there is a place called Dehesha, smack in the middle of Bethlehem. And what they did there, and this is very important because a United Nations agency is supposed to be promulgating ideas of peace. Again, what we did was our agency hired a Palestinian crew, an Arab crew, to go and film them on January 1st in their celebrations of that day. They have marches in Dehesha and in Ida and a few other UNRWA camps to memorialize the January 1st beginnings of the Fatah, the organization behind, of course, the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. What's fascinating to see is how instead of promulgating peace, it would be one thing if they were saying, well, we're going to have a peaceful Palestinian Arab state in the future, and we're looking forward to uh, some kind of, a, of maintaining the principles of the United Nations, of reconciliation, peace. Instead, what we saw was all of a sudden tens of Kalachnikovs and other kinds of weapons were pulled out of the stock. They were shooting in the air and saying, we're going to liberate Palestine, we're going to liberate Jerusalem. And this does not sound like a United Nations agency, quite the opposite. Basically, the war agency of the United Nations. As a matter of fact, that nations around the world give money to UNRWA to create a peaceful agency, an agency that will promulgate peace. That's what UNRWA says they're going to be doing, relying on United Nations principles, what it says in the, in the UN Charter, every time you have a school, you put up a sign, peace is here. However... Now, we're an agency that has hired a staff to go over their curriculum, 1,000 new school books that have come out since January 1st, 2000, when UNRWA adopted the Palestine Authority education system. And there's one theme throughout the education system, a theme of promoting war. And that could be theoretical in the air. As a matter of fact, the UNRWA representative in Europe said very recently, we don't have any arms, we don't have any arms training, we don't have any weapons, we're a peaceful agency. So this is our opportunity right after the UNRWA issued their statement to do something and to record it. The question of school books in the Palestinian areas is a well-known fact. But if the school books would be changed today, this very day, would that make any difference? Because teachers could still slam the education the way they want. And it's my view that it would take three generations to wash out the poison from the education system. And we have the example in Germany today. That's been 77 years ago and still there are remnants of Nazism to be found there. Well, that may be the case. However, it would take one day, one day to revamp the school system in UNRWA. If the funders of UNRWA said, look, you want our money? 
you have to have a new school system. And guess what? There is already a school system in place waiting to be applied. It was developed at Berzate University in Ramallah, a school system of peace and reconciliation. However, the PA does not allow that to be used. That's a Palestinian authority headed by Mahmoud Abbas. It was developed under the tutelage of Shimon Peres, the former foreign minister and, and defense minister and president. I had an interview with Mr. Peres many years ago, which he talked of the, the school system for peace that Berzay University had created. However, when we went to Berzay University to interview the people who run it, they said very clearly, this school system is not allowed, is censored by the Palestinian Authority and by UNRWA. So instead of a peace system, we see a war system. This is very, very important because we know that the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, and the Palestinian Authority maintain their warlike stand against Israel. However, what most people do not know is that there are 67 nations who fund what's supposed to be a peace curriculum in UNRWA to balance all that. And guess what? It's not happening. And that the largest donor nation to UNRWA today is Germany in the area of $200 million a year. And they send the money not only for teachers and school books, and the whole atmosphere there is an atmosphere of war. Was that organized under Chancellor Merkel yes. or just now? Chancellor Merkel, when she began her uh, leadership, Germany was giving $15 million a year to UNRWA. And when she completed her leadership, it was $200 million. And what I emphasize is that the money is coming from Germany without any inspection, without any supervision. I flew to Germany together with our translator, Dr. Arnon Gross, and Rabbi Abraham Cooper two years ago. We went to the Bundestag, and we were welcome in every aspect of the Bundestag, but not in Merkel's office. Her people did not want to see us. Her advisor for anti-Semitism said, well, he sees it, but he can't do anything about it because Germany is promoting outside of Germany. Therefore, what you see here is UNRWA is viewed as a foreign entity supported by Germany. And the response of the German ambassador was, I don't have time to look at their school books, end quote. Even worse, she responded to saying, I've just been assured that UNRWA is promoting a peace curriculum. She wrote an article against me in the Macquarie Show newspaper. She is Susanne Wasum Reiner, today's German ambassador to Israel. Now we'll have to see. There is a new government in Germany. On our website, israelbehindthenews.com, we show... 915 pictures our camera people took in the UNRWA refugee camps in Bethlehem, and not one is for peace. And these decorate the fences, the walls, the schools, and all with one purpose in mind, killing Jews. Not hating Jews, but killing Jews. What is important to know is that there are 15 German foundations, all supported by the German government, currently working inside UNRWA. Every one of them is promoting the UNRWA curriculum of war. And this is what's tragic. Israel government doesn't go after them. These are the same foundations that help Israel's health, education, and welfare facilities. So there's a conflict of interest there. Your organization is very active. How can you deal with this? The way we can deal with it is with facts. And by statistical error, maybe we'll find some people in the German and other governments who will respond. Now that we came through the, with the fact, after the UNRWA representative in Germany said there is no such things as weapons training or live weapons inside the UNRWA camps, now we caught them on January 1st. So today, we are sending a letter to every ambassador, including Germany, that gives money to UNRWA and asks them, will you ask UNRWA to disarm? 
and to conduct a full inspection of arms in your schools and all your facilities. Let's see what they say. But you've been doing that for years now, and what success have you had? We have had great success. The great success is in small steps. They're listening now. We used to be in a situation that no one wanted to talk with us. Now all the ambassadors and all the consuls at least want to speak with us and hear what we have to say, which is very important. We talked about the financial contributions of Germany. What about other countries? Well, the other nations involved are the UK, Canada, Sweden, the Netherlands, Belgium. Those are the important countries. Uh, But they've reduced their contribution. They have reduced it to an extent. Nations that have reduced their contribution thinking that the United States was going to get back involved. Now, here's the scoop of the day. The United States sent an allocation to UNRWA, which did not get to the UNRWA schools. Why? Because the United States has signed on a contract with UNRWA that they will only give the money if UNRWA assures them, number one, of full transparency, and number two, of a revamp of the schools. And guess what? They wouldn't give real reassurances of transparency. And the spokeswoman of UNRWA said very openly and very clearly, we are not going to change the school books. So what's happening to the money? The money is in, the money is in escrow. In Hebrew, we say ne'emanut until UNRWA shows something new. So UNRWA has a sudden deficit because the American government is not giving the money that they thought they would give automatically. So let me ask you something about a different subject. One of the ministers of the... Palestinian Authority has this week said that under no circumstances will they stop paying the prisoners, terrorists who kill Jews. What is very, very important to emphasize, it's not only the payments to the terrorists. In 2015, our agency, the Badin Center for Near East Policy Research, uncovered a law, an unprecedented law that has not been anywhere else in history. A law that if you murder a Jew, you get a salary for life, and your family gets a salary for life. Not only if you murder a Jew, my friend Yitzhak Ben-Gad, his son was killed in a head-on collision with an Arab from Gaza. And when they brought the Arab body back to Gaza, there was a celebration because he killed a Jew. There has never, ever been an entity to award people for murdering Jews. I've asked scholars of the Holocaust, not even in Germany was there an award, salary for life, for someone who murdered Jews. Here, it's even worse than that. The key thing to ask Abu Mazen, and, and I ask all listeners to this program, ask the representative of the Palestinian Authority in your area, will you cancel the law that provides an automatic salary if you murder a Jew? Have you ever tried to contact or speak with Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority? I did meet with Yasser Arafat on three occasions, one privately, the other two in public circumstances. Uh, that was his predecessor. That's correct. And it would turn out to be a very fruitful meeting I had with him. I said, Mr. Arafat, when are you going to say words of peace in the Arab language? And he said to me, you have to see our school books. And then I said to Mr. Arafat, can you make that arrangement? And he did. And as a result, every year we have like a permanent order from the Palestinian Authority school books, from the Palestinian Authority Ministry of Education, to receive their books. We have more than 1,000 books. That's because I met Arafat. I think meeting the enemy is very important. It's a question of what you ask him to do. And the fact that no Israeli government or Jewish organization has demanded that Abbas and the Palestinian Authority cancel that law and, and uh, make a representation against their, their education, that's the problem. That's very interesting that the Palestinian Authority today will let you have their school books so freely when they know full well who you are 
and what you want to do with them. You know what the key is? We pay for it. We give them a fee every year. It's in cash, a very nice arrangement. When you deal with Arabs in business, that's what comes first. You mentioned paying a fee, so how are you funded? We are funded only by private contributions. That maintains our integrity, and we can sleep well at night knowing that we can say what we want, do what we want, ask what we want, write what we want, produce what we want, without any interference from any government at all. So if any of my listeners would like to contribute to your work, how do they contact There's a donation button at israelbehindthenews.com. Israelbehindthenews.com. That is our website. And you can contribute in any currency in the world. David Bedin, thank you very much. I said here on several occasions in recent weeks that Prime Minister Bennett is in the pocket of his Arab coalition partner Mansour Abbas and his rum parties for Knesset members. No, I am told, you are wrong. Abbas only recently said, quote, Israel was born Jewish and will remain so. Hollow words, because I am once again being proved right. He's preventing making the desert bloom. The government has decided to plant trees in an area of the Negev that is state land. That caused a Bedouin uproar, claiming that the land belongs to the Al-Arish family. I have no evidence either way, but know that Bedouin families used to, and some still do today, move from place to place according to the conditions across the area, which is Israeli state land. If that family has at one time in the past decided to settle down, then there can be no dispute that their claim on the land is illegal. Because the major support for the Ram Party is from the Bedouin sector, Mansour Abbas once again shows his teeth to Bennett. The Negev is Ram, and I demand, I demand to stop the planting and expedite the arrangement. Abbas warned. I-24 News reports that the controversy is focused on the issue of unrecognized villages and what the Bedouins see as an attempt to remove them from their homes to make way for development and as an encroachment on their traditional lifestyle. Tree planting was halted on the third day, last Wednesday, and Benjamin Netanyahu and other opposition leaders vowed to continue planting. It is obvious that Naftali Bennett is sacrificing the interests of the State of Israel on the altar of his personal power. When his actions finally backfire, it will be a humiliating and ignominious fall from grace. And finally, the IDF, Israel's defense forces, are respected as one of the best in the world. In battle, as well as in extracurricular and leisure activities, there is a spirit of togetherness and responsibility for one another. Although obedience to orders is the basis of a successful army, the IDF has demonstrated that morality is uppermost in the relationship with the enemy, and that in skirmishes, for instance, crowd control methods rather than deadly weapons are being used. While politics can play no part in our soldiers' duties, they are nevertheless au fait with the trends of woke prevailing in the world and are aware 
and actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially to social issues. That has recently been demonstrated by the 51st Battalion of the Golani Brigade, who were requested by their commanding officer to donate blood to MDA, Magendavit Adom, when their special vehicle arrived at their base. The soldiers refused to complete the necessary form because instead of mother and father, it substituted parent one and parent two. There was a discussion with the officers who tried to convince them of the importance of soldiers' blood donation, though no official order was ever issued. In a letter to the Ministry of Health, the soldiers asked not to mix agendas with life-saving issues. Quote, we live in a Jewish state that values Israel's traditions and its Jewish character. It is important for us to note that the sole responsibility for the blood that was not donated today is MDAs and the Ministry of Health that changed the wording on the form. Today, we are in the midst of a war of opinions and views around the state's Jewish identity. I'd be interested in your views, so please write to Walter at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com where you will always get my personal reply. That's it for today, so until the next time, this is Walter Bingham wishing you a safe week and please check on your elderly neighbours and see if they are warm enough and have what they need. Thank you. Goodbye. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.